Welcome to the episode. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, and we are on episode number 42. If it sounds like I'm talking with a really kind of creepy voice right now, it's because I'm trying not to wake up my family because everybody's sleeping. My name is Dominic. My co-host's name is Janice, and you will hear from him after this intro. Today we have the pleasure of speaking to just a fabulous human being, Mr. Jack Grail. Jack is a working sorcerer who authored Ixar's The Hecateon, out of print, as well as various articles for Anathema, Aeon Sophia, Hadean, Katabasis, and Sabbatica Press. He teaches courses on the esoteric aspect of Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, which you should absolutely check out. It's fantastic. And he teaches that alongside a former guest of the show, T. Susan Chang. You can find that course on the website graillore.teachable.com. That's G-R-A-Y-L-E-lore.teachable.com. He also teaches on the magic of Hecate and the Greek magical papyri at theblackthornschool.com He's been invited to present at numerous events such as the Black Flame PDX, the International Left Hand Path Consortium, and the Welsh Occult Conference. Updates on his work may be found at his website, jackgrail.com. We had a really great discussion which seemed for the most part to orbit around the idea of the daimonic emanations of the gods, uh, those versions of the gods that are most accessible, uh, an aspect that can be interacted with. And we explored the idea of the epiphanies um, and how the gods presented themselves and manifest themselves uh, and are available through these epiphanies. And when we speak about daimons, uh, generally, the word spirit is interchangeable with daimon, uh, although oftentimes gods could be called daimons depending on the context, and spirits of the dead can be called daimons, so it can get a little confusing. Um, when we say daimon in this episode, it's generally that lower emanation, the ambassador or deputy or representative of the gods in question. And I'll read a little excerpt from On the Mysteries by Iamblichus about daimons. He's talking about um, the gods, the heroes, the daimons, and the souls. He says, The daimons, which are more immediately dependent upon the gods, though far inferior to them, follow in their train. They are not the primary initiators of actions, but submit themselves to the service of the goodwill of the gods they follow, revealing in action their invisible goodness while likening themselves to them, producing creations which are in their image, giving expression to the ineffable, and causing the formless to shine forth in forms, bringing out onto the level of manifest discourse that which is superior to all reasoning and receiving already that degree of participation in beauty which is innate to them, while providing and conveying it unstintingly to the class of beings that come after them, which are the souls, a.k.a. us. 
He also says, by daimons I mean the generative and creative powers of the gods in their furthest extremity of their emanations and in its last stages of division. Before we move into the episode, I'd like to just say thank you to our Patreon supporters. As always, you guys keep the lights on here, so we really appreciate that. If anyone else would like to join as a patron, please feel free. Go to patreon.com, look up The Magician and the Fool podcast, and you can find information there on how to help us out. Anyone can also feel free to give us a rating and review on iTunes, and that seems to make us more available to more people, which is cool. We dedicate this to Hermes and Asclepius, and may the merits that we accumulate be distributed to all sentient beings, so that they, together with us, will equally realize awakening. here with the amazing jack grail (laughs) uh thanks for coming on jack thank you so much for having me dominic i really appreciate it yeah we're we're grateful for it absolutely i've I've had the pleasure of getting to know you uh, online over the past i don't know year or two and uh nice to actually see you in semi real life here on, on the video yeah, it's been great, man. I've enjoyed it very much. And it's nice to meet you, uh, you and Janice, face-to-face. So um, before we kind of delve into our our topics, let's maybe just hear about what you've got going on right now. Um, maybe you can introduce yourself to people who may not know uh, who you are. Oh, yeah, of course. Well, no, most won't. <laughs> My name is Jack Grell, and I, um, I, I wrote a, a, a grimoire dedicated to Hakati called the Hakatian through the publisher XXR. And I teach courses on um, the magic of late antiquity and on Hecate. I have a, a class on Hecate called Walking the Fork Path through the um, Blackthorn School, uh, which is an online entity. And I have another class on the Greek magical papyri called PGM Praxis, which is a year-long course where we cover about 50 spells from the PGM through the course of, of 12 months with a new spell every week being released with notes and discussion about that. And I just started a new course called um, Godsong, which is a year-long exploration of both Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, where we read through both works and try to look at them, not just from the literary sense, but from the standpoint of, of the esoteric, right? I mean, these are works of literature, unlike the PGM or the Orphic hymns or the you know Hermetic material. They're works of literature, but they still, given how old they are, they still give us a glimpse into what is probably the Bronze Age mindset when it comes to deities and epiphanies, you know, how, how prayers, devotion, sacrifice, faith work. So I'm um, all the courses, although they sound kind of different, they kind of tie in, or I flatter myself you know, that they tie in. You know, of course, Hecate crops up frequently in the Greek magical papyri in the PGM. And there's lots of, uh, in late antiquity, the PGM contains lots of references to fate, to necessity, to ananke. And they're obsessed with that idea of what is your fate versus what is what is your choice? You know, what's within the realm of the possible and what is your destiny? And some of those questions are addressed, uh, of course, in, in Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. So it's kind of fun to 
interlock them and see how they complement each other and where they're different, you know. So I basically spend a lot of time, you know, like I am now yelling at my laptop in my attic, uh, sur surrounded by African masks and Thai amulets and Hakathian images and uh, and the occasional snake skin. So that, that's, who I, that's who I am and what I do. Well, you got to have the snake skin. Ah, yeah, right, right. I mean, I think it's a litmus test for a sorcerer, right? Do you have... Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, have a, I have a snakeskin box, actually, that I really like. Oh, very nice. Very nice. I Speaking of snakeskin, I, I told Genesis the other day it was pretty amazing. I live out in the Pacific Northwest. We don't see that many snakes, and I was out doing some... Um, there's a forest nearby that I go to and do some work, and uh, I was sitting and in, in kind of in kind of a con contemplative mode. And at the end of it, I, I looked down at my feet and there was a, a full snakeskin just on the ground right there. Oh. Yeah. Oh I my mean, God. Yeah, that was pretty, that was pretty amazing. That is, you save it for an Agatha diamond, right? Exactly. That's and a, that's, a that's what I, yes. Well, that's, and that's perfect. This is perfect because, you know, the sun just entered Leo and the first decan of Leo is associated with the Gothodaemon. So we're kind of in that um, in that period, in that pylon of the of the Agathodaemon right now. I I love that. And you know, for any listeners not familiar with it, Agathodaemon means the good spirit, right? Who could be both the spirit of the harvest and your property that you would pour out a glass of wine to when you feasted at the end of the harvest. Or it could be the more cosmic version of the, the good spirit of the created cosmos, whose embodiment you know, was a serpent often in, in household shrines and those kind of things. And as you know, the Greek magical papyri has multiple spells directed toward Agatha diamond. I want to uh, suggest burning a snakeskin to honor it. And I have to say, when I did this spell, this is a warning to all this, I, um, I burned the, the snakeskin, and as it burned, or the snake slough, you know, and as it burned, I let the incense uh, drift over a mask I was uh, consecrating for that purpose. And then I had the uh, the intuitive feeling like lean forward and breathe it in. Because sometimes I breathe in the incense to sort of, you know, take into me the, the matrix of the offering. And I did, and I inhaled it. My God, I've never been pepper sprayed, but I can guarantee you there are a few <laughs> worse things I've put in my body than burning snakeskin fumes. Oh, my God, it was awful. I know I, sometimes I wish I had like a camera to film like the magic bloopers because <laughs> I, I have made the I have made some pretty stupid missteps over the years. But I, I start laughing when I do something like that because I think it's hilarious. And um, it's so funny to it's so fun to laugh at yourself when these things happen. You know, it's, it's, it's one of the things, too, that I like it, one of my pet peeves is what I call pagan porn, which is where people have these long descriptions, these perfect rituals that go out without a hitch, you know, as the mist rolled in, I lay naked on the pentacle, you know, and uh, the candles lit for hours, and I lay there and, you know, the, mounted by the goat. I'm like, wait a minute, don't they have mosquitoes where you live? Like, how does that work? People <laughs> how do you like five candles and they don't go out for hours? Like, how do you, how did you carve this thing so that you could, did you have a tarp? Then why didn't the wind blow? Like, wait a minute, anyone who's <laughs> right. done this work, half of my rituals end up with me stomping around coughing and pounding my chest you know or trying to use my phone to read the the thing it's 
I, I'm with you, Janice, man. I think, I think you're not doing it right unless something's going wrong, ironically. Right. As I walk into the temple, I light the candles, and then I trip and fall on my face. And then when I get up, I yes. walk into the wall. And then... <laughs> <laughs> But somehow it all works, and it, somehow things work anyway. And um, but I was going to say the use of the mask thing is interesting to me that you associated it with, uh, or that you were using it as part of an agathos daimon right? Were you using? Were you consecrating the mask to then later use in invocations when you invoke agatho daimon? You know what? There's this quote from Shakespeare, if I can be pompous, that says a poet's role is to give to unembodied things, a local habitation and a name. And sometimes when I invoke a deity I'm not used to, de to, to calling forth, I like to have an object or an item or something that I ask them, you know, to, to become associated with, I won't say inhabit, but to, but to become part of, so that I can focus on a material object and, you know, stop waving my hands at the, in, in the, the air. And so I had a, a really nice African mask and it showed, it was actually kind of a two-part mask. It had a face of someone looked very serene on it. And then on the perched on the top of the mask was a humanoid figure that was crouched over and leaning down and pressing his cheek fondly against the forehead of the lower mask. And, you know, in African masks, they often have a small humanoid figure on the top, which is sort of if I can, you know, like meant, I think, to indicate the diamond of the person or the, the spirit that's personal to him or his family or her and her fortune, you know. And so I love this mask because often they're kind of fierce or ambiguous, but this figure was literally embracing its host. And I love that. And I love the fact that a Gotha diamond, despite having serpentine imagery, is, you know, meant to be a benevolent force, good spirit. And so it was a way, I already had the mask, I thought every time I do this right, I'll burn the incense, I'll let it drift over this mask, and that mask will come to sort of be a, a loki, you know, a locus for, the, for this, um, this spirit in my personal praxis. So it was just something I did privately uh, to do. And then I, if I take a whiff, I thank God I did that mask no favors. That's, that smells <laughs> I I'm with you. I, I lit some snakeskin in my office here at night and had to frantically open the windows and, and yes. kind of fan everything out before my wife like burst through <laughs> to see what the hell I was doing. Yeah, it's, it's shocking. It's shocking. I mean, in a good way, I think, you know, but for that reason, we should probably use it as asphytidia or something like that. You know, like you could use it to banish, yeah. you know, a good spirit that won't leave. It's like, I'll burn the snake skin and then bam, <laughs> it's <just> gone. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, we, it might be best if it was like crushed to a powder and then added to another incense with other serpentine-associated plants that are less pungent. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a good idea. Or mm -hmm. more pungent. Jesus, why not? Well, maybe just <laughs> yeah, sure. pepper yeah. and, 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 and fecal material and asphyxia and, you know, make something that'll vanish anything, including myself, you know, when you burn it. <laughs> well, I like that you mentioned agathodaimon and the fact that because um, we're going to be talking about epiphanies. I think that's going to take kind of center stage here, potentially. Um, it's a fascinating topic, but with the Agatha Diamond, yeah, you have the, the spirit of the land, potentially, but then you also have the larger cosmic emanation of Agatha Diamond. So with these epiphanies that we're going to be talking about, you know, there's many, many layers of, of maybe the way that the gods uh, appear to us and how they uh, manifest. Yeah, absolutely. Do you mind? 
since we're talking about, do you mind if I read one of the invocations to the Agatha Diamond from the oh, Greek? No, do. Yeah, no, that's a hundred with us. Yeah, fantastic. This one, um, it's uh, from PGM for fifteen ninety six. It's a uh, it's a consecration rite to ask the Agatha Diamond to consecrate an item, which is really cool because it's an all purpose rite. So you could use it to consecrate a talisman, a phylactery, a, a blade, uh, you know, a, anything really. It's really open-ended, which is one of the things I like about the PGM is oftentimes it's fluid. It's flexible. It gives you options, you know. And so, and it calls upon Agatha Diamond, which you think it's kind of surprising. You think it call on Hermes, you know, or, or someone like that or thought. But, you know, it calls upon Agatha Diamond for this beautiful conjuration uh, it, of that spirit in his more cosmic form, which is kind of understandable because as is traditional in Egyptian magic, the sorcerer is sort of stepping into the shoes of the demiurge to create something, to create as the demiurge creates. And just as in, you know, ancient pharaonic magic, that priest would call himself Heka, the first utterance of the demiurge, who's the elder brother of all created things that followed and therefore have the authority to create magically. So in the PGM, thousands of years later, this, the sorcerer calls forth a, a creator, a cosmic deity, to partake in that energy to allow himself, herself, to create something as well, to create sacrality, to create you know, a, a beautiful item that has uh, subtle powers as opposed to their, um, the simple ones. So here's, I'm going to read um, part of this conjuration. I'm going to skip around because there's parts of it that... Uh, that either have too many magical voices or things like that, but just to get some sense of it, just because I love it, I'm passionate about it. Listen to the, how they describe this spirit. I invoke you, the greatest God, eternal Lord, world ruler who are over the world and under the world, mighty ruler of the sea, rising at dawn, shining from the east for the whole world, setting in the west. Come to me, thou who rises from the four winds, joyous Agathos Diamond, for whom heaven has become the processional way. I call upon your holy and great and hidden names, which you rejoice to hear, talking about the magical voices which are coming. The earth flourished when you shone forth, and the plants became fruitful when you laughed, and the animals begat their young when you permitted. Echoes there of the harvest God began us. Give glory and honor and favor and fortune and power to this item, and you name it, you know, which I consecrate today. Oh, I invoke you, the greatest in heaven. And then there's a string of magical voices, including, which will sound familiar to many people, Yabath, Abawoth, Sabawoth, Adonai, Great God, Osorinofre, those right there, anyone familiar with the headless right will recognize those magical voices. And then he goes on to say, the shining Helios, giving light throughout the whole world. So here we are conflating Agatha Damon, as from we have from the beginning with a solar power. You are the great serpent, leader of all the gods, who control the beginning of Egypt and the end of the whole inhabited world, who mate in the ocean. You are he who becomes visible each day and sets in the northwest of heaven and rises in the southeast. And then it ends after conjuring each hour of the sun by name and by the animal. That's the phenomenal epiphany of the sun. 
it ends by saying, you who have set at evening an old man who are over the world and under the world, mighty ruler of the sea, hear my voice in this present day and this night and these holy hours and let all things done by this phylactery be brought to fulfillment. You, Agatha Dane, and the helper accomplish everything for me done by this phylactery. The one Zeus is Serapis. <laughs> Thrown in, thrown in for good measure at the end. <laughs> you know, the thing about Agatha's Daimon is, it, you know, it's very clear, too. I mean, this is the, this god has primacy. You can't read the magical papyri or, or other uh, similar sources of that time, including the Hermetica, without recognizing the very essential role and placement of Agatha Daimon or Agatha's Daimon. Uh, Knufus. And it's interesting to me because the name literally means the good spirit or, or, you know, another way we could say that is the spirit of goodness. You know, the, the essence, yeah. this is the essential self-created self-conscious spirit of pure goodness. And this is considered the supreme being. So we moral relativism doesn't really apply here i mean we're we're saying the supreme being in the cosmos is this the the spirit of goodness itself you've you've nailed it janice and a lot of people come to the pgm just because all the best conjurations of hakate come through it so they go to it <laughs> thinking it's going to be 300 spells to hakate right and then they discover what is this yahuwah and uh you know, Yao and Abrasax and Helios and Ra and Typhon. And even though there's, you know, so many of these male or masculine deities, they all are masks or faces of that, that solar phonic power that is, you know, referred to as the, you know, the, the, the beginning of the universe, the cosmic creator. And some of them are, are more specific and some of them are cosmic demiurges. But it's replete, like you say, with these conjurations. And Agatha Diamond comes again and again. And one of the shocking things, like you pointed out, is how positive it is. You know, I feel like we're so used to spells that are curses or they're darker or they celebrate the more malevolent aspects of these powers. And yet there's so much in the PGM that has beautifully you know, uh, celebrates the beneficial one, which, which to me, a lot of people draw a hard line. They're like, unless they're hermeticists or, or already ceremonial magicians, they're like, I'm not interested in the masculine deities. But you can't, uh, it's very hard to extricate because the deities in the PGM, you know, are like a tapestry. They're interwoven with each other and they have complementary functions with each other. And there's a lot to be mined there for people who are looking, perhaps without knowing it, for paternal masculine deities that are positive and that are beneficial, that are benevolent. Um, there's a lot of people that come to the worlds of occultism, neo-paganism, esotericism, from a place of father neglect, father abandonment, father abuse, father violation, and it creates a father contempt and its corollary, father hunger. And the PGM provides numerous workings to provide a power, a reference, a way of referencing and accessing and becoming in relation to a paternal benevolent power. If you don't mind, I'm going to read another 
part of another spell that I'm really fond of. There's a so solar father initiation in the PGM. It's PGM three starts on four, line four ninety four, and it's long, but it's a it's a beautiful celebration that begins with almost like a calling of the quarters, and ends with a really positive invocation of the positive aspects of the spirit. Let me just read for a moment from it. The the uh, the sorcerer calls out to this deity. Come to me in your holy circuit of the Holy Spirit, founder of the world, O God of gods, Lord of the world, who have divided by your own divine spirit the universe. First from the firstborn you appeared, created carefully from water that's turbulent, who founded all the world, abyss, earth, fire, water, air, and in turn ether and roaring rivers, the red-faced moon, heaven stars, morning stars, whirling planets, it's by your counsels they attend all things. You who summon all things into being. Hear me, O Lord, graciously, gladly, for a blessing from every element, from every wind today, with your happy face in the present hour, because I invoke your holy name from every side. Come to me with a happy face to a bed of your choice, giving me sustenance, health, safety, wealth, the blessing of children, knowledge, a ready hearing, goodwill, sound judgment, honor, memory, grace, shapeliness, beauty to all who see me, you who hear me in everything whatsoever, give persuasiveness with words, great God. We give thanks to you with every soul and heart stretched out to you, O unutterable name, honored with the appellation of God, and blessed with the appellation of Father. For to everyone and to everything you have shown fatherly goodwill, affection, friendship, sweetest power, granting us intellect, speech, and knowledge. And it goes on to say, we rejoice because you showed yourself to us. We rejoice because while we are still in bodies, you deified us by the knowledge of who you are and thanks of men and women is to you one. We come to you a womb of knowledge, a womb pregnant through the Father's begetting, O eternal continuation of the pregnant Father. Bowing before your goodness, we ask no favor, but this, that we be maintained in knowledge of you, and one protection, that we not fall away from a life such as this. If there's a spell in the PGM, more flush with gratitude and admiration for the demiurge and celebration of his benevolent aspect. That is the same, though they don't call it the Agathodaemon. I believe you're praying to that same benevolent aspect of the solar creator in both those conjurations. They're complementary and references to Zeus or Serapis aside, you know, they are ways of connecting with that benevolent, paternal, and uh, gift-giving power through whom all life flows into all things that have associations of the sun. So I love those workings. Yeah, I love that example. Thank you for doing that. And it's, it's fascinating because it is a petition. I mean, there's definitely a petition aspect to it, but um, it's also very reverential, obviously. Yeah. Um, and I think that people that come to 
sorcerous works um, uh, such as this PGM are looking for a lot of quick fixes. And, um, you know, we've, we've, I've used the example before, uh, kind of a vending machine approach to, to the gods where you put some coins in, you press the button and you get what you want out of it. Uh, this is, this is a little bit different. I think a lot of the PGM, you see this reverential treatment of the gods. And I think there's a part of the PGM, which we've spoken about, um, which aside from getting you these mundane um, problems solved, it's also uh, spiritually enriching, um, life enriching. It creates a, a worldview that really kind of um, expands expands your mind, expands you spiritually, and, and and really can improve you. Other than other than merely the the band aid where you're you're trying to get uh, some money because your your car broke down or whatever. Well, yeah, and and I have been very I've been a hardliner on this. You know, I I believe that piety is not only essential but to me when i is a natural indicator of somebody who has made a genuine contact with one of the um you know one of the gods whether that be one of the levels of the gods whether that's cosmic hypercosmic or end cosmic aspects of the divine piety is a natural when you made contact with the sacred piety is a natural response to that you can't help but be filled with love to overflowing and a sense of devotion and respect and admiration and awe before this just resplendent and beautiful and uh, spectacular being that has deigned to grace you with a theophany Mm. that's beautifully said that's beautifully said and I agree 100%. It's like seeing those people, you see a YouTube clip of someone swimming with a huge great white shark or someone yeah. petting a grizzly. And you're like, how the hell did that happen? Well, it didn't happen by them threatening it, that's for sure. It happened by probably them spending months gradually closing proximate distance and revealing that they had no damage to, to offer it and, and something good perhaps to give it and gradually developing a relationship with a non-human unseen power or a a non-human power that was capable of of either good or bad, and they managed to form a relationship to it. So I agree 100%. It's a great danger, I think, to treat this work as sort of slot machine magic, um, which is not to say that it can't work that way. Right. But I think, and in fact, I think everyone I talk to seems to know there is such a thing as beginner's luck with magical systems, you know? Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, like the first time... You try something, you often get like a weirdly quick result with startling indication that it worked. But then there's a tendency to say, oh, okay, well, I'll just hang on to it. And nine months from now, if I need to do it again, I'll do it again. As opposed to, I got lucky. I need whatever power that was. They opened the door for me. And now I need to ease in and show them my gratitude or incorporate them into my practice. Or at least make it an offering that shows I respect them and that know that they didn't have to do this and sort of form a relational bond with them. And, you know, you guys both know, like, this work is not for everyone. And sometimes I get contacted from people saying, well, is, I don't know if this is for me. Should I take this class or not? Should I buy this book or not? Should I try this spell or not? And one of the questions I ask him is, can you just tell me a bit about yourself? Because if they have, if they're able to maintain employment, if they're able to maintain some relationship with some family members, if they have one or two friends, if they have a circle of people that they can work with and act with, 
well, then you probably have the tools to do relational magic because you have the tools to form relations with mortals as well. And mortals are spirits too, you know? And so, but when someone says to me, well, I just got fired for the third time in six months. And, you know, for the second time, I found out my new apartment's haunted and I don't talk to my parents or my kids. And uh, I really like some friends. I mean, unfortunately, these people are drawn to, you know, to, um, to, to systems like this. But I don't think that person, if you're not capable of maintaining a mundane relationship with someone, then what are the odds you're going to be able to form a lasting reciprocal relationship with something that's invisible and often silent? Yeah, it's that's a very good point. And I think that that hinges on another related thing, which is I believe that the, the, the root of piety is love. Um, and to love is to know. You can't. You can't love something you don't know, but you can approach with sincerity and an open heart and the willingness to love. And I, I believe that our relationship with the gods and the spirits, it should start in love and end in love. And in between those two points of love is knowledge, gnosis. To love is to know, and to know is to love. And when we know the gods, the very experience of knowing them and have being known by them is an experience of true, pure love, the cosmic eros that binds all things together. Wow, that's really beautiful. It, and, you know, I, I would go one step further and say a lot of people experience it but don't recognize it for what it is because they're looking for something that looks visually CGI or paranormal. When in fact, I, mean, it's, I, I believe many the gods created the mundane world, so a lot of times they give us what we want or what we need through the agency of the mundane world. And as far back as, as Homer, and, and these stories may, may go back far beyond Homer, they may have been created in the Bronze Age, the gods most frequently appear in actual people. You know, uh, Ares will appear in the form of a warrior who just happens to rally the troops and lead them back into battle. Athena will appear as a counselor to the king who gives wise advice. Athena, you know, Aphrodite will appear as, you know, uh, a lady's handmaid who brings two people together to find love. They frequently act through human agency to achieve the ends either desired by them, by fate, or by the mortals that they are allied with. So I, I would agree with you, Janice. And I think part of the, the challenge, at least for me, it is, is keeping my eyes open and not be jaded so that when the mundane world interacts with me and when natural forces appear and when people you know interact with me, I have to keep reminding myself, it could this be an epiphany of the divine? What have I asked for? What am I getting? What are they giving me? I'm speaking to this person, but it, could it be that this is Athena? Speaks words, is it possible that this is the answer to what I've been asking for the form of you know my brother or my coworker or this stranger? And once you start doing that, you start seeing stuff frequently, you know, and it can be ambiguous, but it can also be deeply gratifying to think I'm on, I'm on to them. I'm beginning to see things. And I, it sort of sacralizes the mundane in a way that's exciting and makes things fresh. I love that. I love that so much. And I, I, I came to that on my own as well, um, reading the Iliad and the Odyssey and then simultaneously doing this work while while studying that work i mean that that's how they appeared to people back then so why wouldn't they appear to us now in that way through 
right. through mortals or through this world. Um, I, I think there's so much rich material here that, that we can run with. Along those same lines, as far as epiphanies go, um, I love the story. I mean, it's a very sad story, and I, maybe I shouldn't bring it up, but it's a story that you shared about your, your dog passing uh, not too long ago. Oh, right. And the, the epiphanies that happened as that, that process was happening, as that transition was happening for your dog, would you mind talking about that? I, I thought it was very moving and a great example of, of what we're kind of getting at here, the kind of overlapping seen and unseen worlds. And um, we talked about this with uh, Susie Chang a little bit last episode, way back a few months ago. And and how it relates to divination and how you can essentially divine by looking at the world around you. Obviously, something like a tarot deck is a more focused way to to do it. But um, the unseen world is interacting with us all the time. Yeah, no, that's true. And yeah, the anecdote you mentioned is you know for listeners that that hadn't heard it, I I had a beautiful little dog. He was a part a Boston Terrier, part pug, little brindle. Bully. He was a jerk his whole life. He, um, <laughs> he, he, whenever he wanted something, he barked angrily for it. He bit my hand when I tried to pet him, and he, you know, he'd eat anyone's food. He snored way too loud on the bed, and um, and he was just the best. He, he was he was never not a jerk, and he never didn't do what he wanted to do. I um, love that little dude already. <laughs> <laughs> right? He was such a bully. He was all chest and head, and he's missing his left hind leg, which had a weird thing of when he would urinate he would duck his head and he would do a handstand and he would be well because he was so top heavy he was all chest and all head so since he was missing a leg he would try to lift the other leg but he only had one back leg so when he did it he'd literally do a handstand it's just you had to stand back because you know so it's not to get he's done he was uh he was a hell of a dog and um and he lived till he's about 15 and then of course you know he had things happen he just began to fall apart and it's as any pet owner knows if they don't die suddenly, it's a very difficult process of knowing when when is enough, when to put them down, when. And of course, you know, part of my prayers that I would do was, you know, let me know when this it was his time because I didn't want to put him down a day too early. And yet you can't always tell whether in too much pain, you know. And so I, in winter uh, a year ago, it was a, no, it was spring, but it was a really cold spring. But one day it got up in the 50s. And I took him out and put him in the lawn so he could see the violets blooming and smell them. And he lay there uh, smelling the spring wind. And, um, and I saw a shadow cross over me. And I looked up and there were five vultures, wingtip to wingtip, circling over us. And I'm not an expert uh, in aviomancy, but it didn't take a Nostradamus to tell me that his time had come. You know, and that night he started crying in pain and we took him to the vet and we did put him down. And um, if you don't mind, since I do that in the class, I thought I might um, I thought I might read the spell that I read um, when we put him down, since it is a spell to Anubis. And Anubis, of course, it is the cycle pump. So he's, he's doubly appropriate in this context. He, I prayed to this power to take the dog's soul to where it needed to go. And of course, being a dog, I figured that it was uh, couldn't be a better one than that. So I'll just, uh, it's short, and I'll read a few lines from it. 
it conjured him to say, Open to me, O earth. Open to me, O underworld. Open to me, O abyss. O gods who are exalted, come. Come into me, O my compeller. For I am the pharaoh, lion ram. Lion ram, lotus is my name. I am Ganta, Gintni, Geretni. The Ahor is my name, my true name. Balcom, the powerful one of heaven. Ablanathanalba, the griffin of the shrine of God. Oh, good ox herd. And it was supposed to be whispered, this line. Anubis is the ox herd. It's like the good shepherd, you know. Oh, good ox herd, my compeller. Hail Anubis, come to me. Oh, high one, mighty one, master of secrets for those in the underworld. Oh, pharaoh of those in Amenti. Oh, chief physician, good son of Osiris. He whose face is strong among the gods. Appear in the underworld before the hand of Osiris. You should serve the souls in Abydos in order that they all live through you, these souls, these ones of the sacred underworld. Come to earth. Take care of this little dog. For I am Isis the wise, the sayings of whose mouth shall come to pass. It's such a beautiful conservation. And it has two opposing, I call them the god faces, the theoses, right? You declare yourself at the beginning, uh, you know, one god face, the pharaoh, lion, ram, a solar, you know, solar phonic uh, god. And then at the end, you say you're Isis the wise, who is, of course, the stepmother of Anubis, whose true mother was Nephthys, but who was born uh, and uh, of, the, of his father, Osiris. So you, you speak to him as his stepmother. And any good son that's going to ignore his stepmother deserves what he gets. So <laughs> I, I love that spell. And it helped me process my grief. Well, and you also there was also an epiphany afterwards, right? With with a uh, a bee. Oh, that's right. That's right. Afterwards, there was this weird after the whole thing, and he'd been buried on the porch. Whereas I sat there, you know, kind of sadly. A few hours later, there was this strange. It's hard to describe, but like a hollow throttling sound. It was really on that. I never heard anything like it. It was echoey. And I'm like, where is this? And I couldn't figure out where it was coming from. It wasn't words, but it would rise and fall, and it would it would create this this hollow. And very gradually, there was a there was a pitcher shaped like a fish on the deck, and I walked over to it and I tilted it toward me, and a bumblebee flew out. And what's funny is Jack, since he was brindle, his colors were sort of like a bumblebee, and we would joke about that. And bees themselves had a tradition. In ancient, you know, Hellenic cultures, being souls of the dead, they thought they arose from corpses, and um, and there was something about it rising out of the fish's mouth, this bee, and drifting off peacefully into the air, that it really gave me a sense of closure and completion. And I know I can't find, I didn't even bother looking bees coming from fish mouths, you know, <laughs> in ancient texts, but I didn't have to. Yeah, I just accepted it. I said that I've never seen anything happen like that before, and the sound was so strange. And it was weirdly affecting. So I just chose to listen to my own body and say, this is a sign, you know, that what needed to happen has happened. And that's a great example, I believe, of immersion in this worldview. When you do immerse yourself in this worldview, uh, you're able to see things like this and it, it verifies your practice. I mean, it, and, and the experience and in this in this way, I think for you, I, I think it was very uh, therapeutic. Oh yeah, to be immersed in this worldview. 
Um, and it doesn't always have to be a cinematic. You were talking about pagan porn early. I don't know if we had the recording on or not at that point, <laughs> but um, oftentimes you, you do hear these stories of, you know, the gods floating down during the ceremony and it's like a movie and they're, you know, Hecate's wearing like a chain link bikini and there's serpents all falling off of her. And, but it's not always, or I'd say, most of the time, not like that. Um, it's it's more like what you were explaining of of these more subtle, what you would say, mundane uh, manifestations. But if you have the eyes to see, you can make these connections. Yeah, and it's something that you, it, it's actually kind of important because there's a lot of you know I think magical work this Sunday that falls under the heading of path work, and what people usually mean by that is visualizing a series of events in your head, you know, which have, you know, purported spiritual effect. So, uh, you know, if I, if I open a book and it says, here's a path working to connect with Hermes, it might say, you know, you are, you are you know, riding a stallion across the plain and this golden god comes down with a scepter and helmet. He greets you and hands you a gift. You look at it. What is it? You put it in your pocket. You move on. You know, mm -hmm. and I have even my book has a thing or two like that. But people will do this and then they'll talk about, well, I met Hermes or I saw Hermes gave me this. But it's not helpful, I find, to treat that like a full-blown vision of a God. You imagined it in a lead meditation, which is cool. But it is different from spontaneously and un, you know, without planning it encountering a, an object or an animal or a phrase or even an image in your mind that's completely unbidden, uh, you know, a, a word, a license plate, um, something happening physically within your body, of a, you know, from a crack of thunder to the sweats to something outside your control. And those were typically considered to be, you know, ep epiphanal moments from the deities. To, for me to imagine myself walking up to Hecate and her handing me a flaming sword and me waving it around and riding off on a dragon is <laughs> gratifying, but it doesn't make me Lord of the night world, you know? Um, and it doesn't matter that I imagined it really well. I intentionally imagined it and it's cool, you know, and my book has some things like that. We imagine walking on a path to prepare yourself for an initiation ritual. But I think there's a danger of conflating what I would think of as, as, Epiphanies in the world you detect with your your senses, or epiphanies that come in dreams or unbidden visions, and led meditations, you know, which which can help to sort of settle our mind and and help us envision powers, but are often quite different in nature than you know um, an actual experience of the phenomenal world intruding into our reality, unbidden. So exactly, uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I was going to say, um, the ancient sources are very clear um, about the preconditions for the reception of vision. I think it's necessary for people to understand because they do rituals and they're like, oh, such and such God or goddess spoke to me. And, you know, they're talking about the voices in their head and it's really just yeah. a simulation of their egoistic you know, it's an egoistic projection and a simulation of desire. Now, there may be on some level a faint connection with the daimon being filtered through the planum of the mind, which clothes it in the forms of the psyche. 
And then that person in turn perceives that through their thinking process. However, um, true vision, like you said, often comes unbidden or as a result of an effective ceremony. But in order to be able to receive it, the ancient sources state that you must be pure. And the purity thing isn't a value judgment. In my understanding, it has more to do with being psychically transparent, psychically clean, so that you're able to actually clearly perceive the interior realm, which is a very real thing. I mean, if your mind is clouded with um, all kinds of just psychic deratists from, you know, multiplayer online games <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, like, I don't know what, well, I don't watch TV, so I'm just going to admit, you know, like who's the fashionable model competition show that you watch every week and you know right. all kinds of other things like your your mind's going to be clogged with all this all this junk and you, you yeah you, you you nail it man because if you're really deep in your lead meditational pathwork and you're trying to block out everything else because you're trying yes. to focus on creating this idea whereas as you know when you're doing an invocation it's really important because it, whether it's goetic or ceremonial or, or it's uh, you know, what, PGM or whatever, much of the time, I'll speak for myself, much of the time I say the invocation and nothing happens. And there's a part of me that clenches up and I say internally, I fucked it up. This is not, it didn't happen. And then the wiser part of me said, well, the glowing vision you were hoping for didn't happen. But what is happening? And if I can just breathe through that moment of panic, I say, well, the wind is rising slightly and the pages of I'm holding are fluttering and the candle flames are guttering and the clouds have come away from the moon and now I can see the moon and I can feel my heartbeat, which I don't think I could hear before. And off in the distance, I hear an alarm going off. And so that leads you to the second step. Okay, well, these aren't the glowing manifestation you expected. So you can read the ritual again. You feel like you're in the presence of a power, you know. And gradually for me, I look at the moon and maybe it looks like an eye. Or maybe the siren draws closer. Or maybe my heart sees beating faster for no reason I can discern. And I tell myself, I think something's present. I can't see it. But I'm going to proceed as if it's here. And it's humbling because, you know, because I'm not Simon Mages. But it's also... It helps me be alive to my environment and try to understand how these powers appear to me. And so what if it's not always clear? I'm, I'm usually not in a state of purity. So what can be expected of that? Work with what you get, because they're doing the same. They're working with what they get, which is what I bring to the table, you know, which is probably 15 cents in the dollar from what they're hoping for. <laughs> I think that I think you make a great point, and I think it comes down to perception. You you have to be able to perceive, and and like Janice was saying about being clouded up. Um, obviously, if you just got in a fight with your your kids or your wife, um, maybe your your car broke down earlier in the day, and your your boss yelled at you, uh, and you had just been drink, you just drank a, a six pack, and and maybe you ate too much, and so you had indigestion. Your perception of of uh, the world around you is going to be very different. You're going to have uh, fear. You're going to have anger. You're going to have all these emotions that are going to taint um, the experience. Whereas this idea of quote unquote purity, um, 
you're becoming a clean vessel. You're to, to as much as you can, as much as possible, so that these experience are, are experiences are more perceptible um, because they, they may be happening even though you are drunk and you are angry, but you're not going to necessarily, and this is just me, be able to perceive them because you're, you're so clouded. So uh, it, it definitely makes sense on a very practical level. It does. And, and to be fair, people's expectations are often set by the material. And you guys both know, in some PGM spells, you conjure Typhon, and then it says the falcon will come and drop the stone at your feet and collect the stone. You know, incredibly specific descriptions of phenomenal stuff. And so mm-hmm. when people might do the Typhonic initiation, of course, what you often hear is it, it was not successful. The falcon did not drop a stone at my feet. But the fact is, and what I tell them is, whoever wrote this spell, that was his experience of the epiphany. You notice he didn't say, a glowing god with the head of an aardvark appeared and talked to him. A falcon, an entirely natural animal, dropped something at his feet. He went and looked, and there was a stone, and he picked it up. And that was part, it became part of his praxis, understandably. What happened when you did it? You know, they say, well, I don't know. A cat kept walking across me while I was in the linen shroud trying to do the, the work. Well, guess what? A cat is a, is a solar epiphany. All right? Yeah, ty- Typhon you know, it was one of the masks of the solar thonic god. And yeah, a falcon was part of, you know, part of his cult imagery. But the cat, you know, is not nothing. What else did you hear? You know, what else did you see? What else did you taste? What did you experience? Because your experience, having done that right, is just as legitimate as the sorcerer that did it initially and had a falcon drop a stone. I had someone who took my class tell me afterwards, when she did that right, when she got to the moment, the very end with the magical voices, she heard a loud thump on the window. She went downstairs and sure enough, there was a songbird with a broken neck outside her front door. Hmm. It's not a falcon and it's not a stone, but she, I think entirely legitimately, saw that as an epiphany of Typhon in that moment, given the context of what she'd been doing and calling forth. Um, and that's the sort of awareness and that's the sort of thing i think people can expect to do if they do the work diligently and if they're open-minded enough to see what's happening around them well said well said. i think there's also something uh you know on one of my one of the albums by one of my favorite bands coil who incidentally i think they do have a they have a one album where it's um it's all uh recitations of shakespeare's love letters to someone yeah it's pretty neat uh, i think it's i can't remember like the solar or something but anyway um one of the sayings on one of their albums is persistence is all i think that that's important because sometimes something's not going to work the first time you do it but if you do it for seven mm-hmm. days straight yeah you're going to have a higher likelihood of success i think persistence is key you don't give up you keep trying till you get it right so you hit that groove. I, I, I completely agree, especially as someone who often doesn't get results the first time around. As you know, many of the spells in the PGM will say do seven times or after you've done this three nights running and nothing's happened, now read the compulsion. It anticipates that even the Egyptian priest who's doing it may get zero night after night after night. It may have to throw in threats or compulsive techniques. It may have to try for seventh night after the sixth night. Like, I find that incredibly reassuring that there's 
they'll sometimes say, if that doesn't work, try this. And if that doesn't work, try this. But if you still don't get results, you're like, oh, thank God, I'm not the only one. <laughs> well said, well said. And uh, that reminds me of another, another, another thing in the PGM that you had mentioned at some point. I don't, gosh, I don't remember the spell exactly, but um, it says that the spirit will, will speak to you. No one else will hear it, but right. you will hear it. And, and, and so I think that's also reassuring um, that these spirits don't necessarily have to manifest visually um, as, as something out of a movie in order to be real. But then there's also that fine line of of mental health as well that you need we need to maybe address as you know um you did mention earlier that this is not necessarily something for everyone and i think i think keeping mental health in the forefront of of your mind uh is, is probably important as well um when you're hearing voices yeah absolutely absolutely there's a thing i think it's from the the, the so-called mitras right you know and just flipping open my copy, the PGM, here, here's, I think, one of the quotes from the Mithras, right, of the response you can expect from that Cosmo creator that you invoke. Listen to this. It says, he, meaning this, the invoked God, will immediately respond with a revelation. You will grow weak in soul, not be yourself when he answers you. He speaks the oral code to you in verse, and then he departs, but you remain silent, since you'll be able to comprehend these matters by yourself. At a later time, you will remember them infallibly. And then it goes on to, it, it talks in a different part about you will hear these things. Other people will not be able to hear them, but you will hear them yourself, right? And it does leave the window open for the fact that when a phrase jumps in your head or an intuitive leap or an instinctive realization, that that too is an epiphany of the power and why we have to, you know, be aware of our own internal weather. And as you put is a very thin line between hearing voices of your own intuition, instincts, you know, subconscious perhaps, and hearing voices because you're delusional, you're paranoid, you're schizophrenic, and anyone who's been diagnosed as the same should probably, you know, be extremely careful picking the spiritual path to pick one that gives them the least grief and um, and triggers them the least and is the most healthy for him. Certainly asking to be inhabited by gods or have deities speak in their head or be written or, or possessed or, you know, is, is not, I, I would do a hard bulk at someone with serious mental illness interested in trying these techniques. And there was, you know, there's plenty of mediumistic spells in the PGM. And they even refer at one point to the God as the spirit who enters, convulses and leaves me. So, you know, they're talking about Anyone who's been present for a true medium knows that that jerk mm -hmm. of the shock when the whatever happens happens, and so we know what they're talking about. But that's a that's a very liminal state to be in, and I think just as you wouldn't go climb a mountain, you know, with a, a broken leg if, if if you have you know mental or emotional issues that make it dangerous to tell reality from you know from the internal reality or subtle reality, then you probably want to take a hard pass on anything like that. That's for sure. I was wondering if you can expand on this a little bit more, not necessarily the mental health aspect um, because we're not mental health professionals, but um, the, the idea of, of uh, the gods appearing to us in dreams and as epiphanies, I know Gregory Shaw talks about this with his, his dream work and, you know, 
the example he gave was a refrigerator and uh, there was a link to Saturn in that way because of the cold. And it doesn't always have to be an ancient God appearing in the dream either. It could be something mundane uh, because the gods are working through what, what we have available to them already. You've, you've mentioned this. Um, they work with what, what they have and we supply the material for, for the epiphany oftentimes when it's uh, a spontaneous thought or a dream. I wonder if you can expand on yeah, that. As I just, well. and this is somewhere, again, I'm coming from my own experience, but I've noticed it repeatedly with the people that attend my courses and I talk to is deities frequently appear to them in dreams as people they know in real life or celebrities. And usually they don't accept them as such because they're looking for a guy in a toga. You know, they're looking for a woman bearing torches. They're looking for a iconic image of a deity that comes from an age millennia before ours we're not ancient greeks we're not ancient egyptians and we can celebrate and to extent even practice a spiritual current you know consonant with their spirituality but we're contemporary people living in contemporary societies and that means our head is filled with images and songs and movies and sports games with people you know we, we've never seen you might i might do an offering to apollo but then if i have you know if i have a dream of Kanye West who gives me advice, what a fool I'd be to say, well, it wasn't a white guy with blonde curly hair, so I guess I can ignore that dream. You know, where people will conjure. I knew someone who did a prayer to the solar phonic god, and it was um, during the last administration, and they had a dream of the president talking to her. Well, she's a progressive, so she's mad at the dream. She says, I did this, well, it didn't work. I had a dream about, you know, president. He said, well, you know, to be honest, you were calling upon a ruler of a whole cosmic system and you had an encounter with the ruler of the country you live in. So don't discard it out of hand. And it's repeatedly, there's a sense to not value our own times, to be anachronistic, to say, well, it's, you know, that's, I can't do that. That's something I saw on MTV. It's like, but it doesn't matter. That's to, to me, the deities have no form. They're bodiless. Right. Homer calls them the bloodless ones. They don't have bone, blood, body. Their iconography right. is purely a reflection of the culture of the times. And mm -hmm. so when you invite a bodiless, formless entity to enter and have conversation with you, my understanding is it literally, if it chooses to you know, comply, it rummages through the costume, the trunk of costumes you have that's made up of every person you knew, every movie you saw, every sports game you attended, and every day of work and event, and then they, and then they adopt the one that appeals to them. I'm so glad you said this. Yeah, I'm so yeah. I'm so glad you said this because this is a thing of mine. This is a, this is a big point. And anybody with experience with real spirits, like real genuine spirits, not like little makeup play game stuff, but like you know real spirits. If you make contact with the deity, more than likely the communication is going to occur through an intermediary spirit, like a daimon or an mm -hmm. angel, you know? And um, I like your costume analogy, which obviously comes from your drama background. I think <laughs> that, I think that it's, uh, you know, is it the God picking forms or is it that there is an automatic process in the unconscious where the mind clothes the impression from a higher mind uh, in the forms of the mind, you know? So the mind the, the the communication is clothed in the forms of the mind in the in the in the menstruum of our mind 
Because, mm. um, you know, if the, if the soul is like a fluid envelope, the achima is a fluid envelope, the suke, then, then the communication from the deity or the ray from the deity or however you want to envision it has to pass through that envelope. And as soon as it passes into that envelope, it's like an ovum. It, once it passes through the membrane of that cell, of the soul, of the aura, of the, of the sphere of sensation, it becomes closed in the forms of the mind. And mm. so that's necessary, I think, because the soul as an intermediate principle performs a, a function of translation into terms that we can interpret. I think that if we want to experience the deity on its own terms, though, we can also include that request in our invocation. We can say, you know, uh, I ask that you appear to me in your own form or, you know, in, a, in, a, in your own form, but in a way that I may understand, you know. Um, and I think, again, purifying ourselves, meditating, abstaining from intercourse, not watching TV or getting less screen time, maybe not eating animal or not eating flesh. All of these things, I th think, can serve to turn the mind inward out of the channels of sense impression um, that funnel pictures, sounds, sense from the uh, physical senses into the mind. And if we can clear that noise out and then specify, uh, adapt our requests with specific uh, details, we can acquire more clear communication. That's, that's, I can agree with you 100% on all points. And that's not just even, that's consistent with the oldest documents we know. You know, in the Iliad, when Zeus decides to send a dream to Agamemnon to tell him, go attack Troy, he doesn't appear as himself. He has Agamemnon have a dream of Agamemnon's favorite counselor, Nestor, and has Nestor, this, he puts on the mask of Nestor and tells him to tell the king, now is the time to go attack Troy. Even Zeus himself masks himself in Agamemnon's friend and, and counselor. And here's, this is a wonderful one. I just grabbed the PGM again, if you'll let me. This is very short. There's a spell in here to send a dream to someone else. So not to get a divinatory dream your own, but to influence someone through a dream that you send. And in this PGM spell, which is the, from the Demotic Papyri, Supplement 101, the spell begins, O Anubis, High One of Heaven, go to the underworld. Let the head of Osiris stop being far from him. Let Osiris stop sleeping while his head is far from him until a forceful spirit that does not sleep at night is sent to stand above the target's head in the form of a god who is great in his heart and let him do everything which I write for him entirely. So you are saying, Anubis, let Osiris wake up, because Osiris is dismembered in the underworld. Let Osiris allow a spirit of the dead to rise to the upper world, go to the target's house, and appear to the target, not as himself, who the target doesn't know, but as the form of a god who is great in the target's heart. So like if you have a boss who's going to punish you tomorrow, you don't know if the boss worships Abrasax or Helios or Ra or who. So you tell, you don't have to. You're not doing the work. The mediators are doing the work. You tell Anubis, wake up Osiris. Tell Osiris to let a ghost stop of the restless dead, presumably. Have that ghost go to this boss's house. Appear to him at whatever shape that boss respects and tell him such and such. You know, don't have me whipped tomorrow. 
cut my hand off. So you look at the chain, it's like a goetic chain of authority. You know, it's like a hierarchy, but there's a logic to it. But what's fun is you don't know how he's going to appear. The sorcerer has no idea. You say, pick a face and a form that that person will respect, implying that the gods can sort through masks and costumes and identities like we could shuffle a deck of cards. Fantastic example. And also, um, you aged yourself earlier with the MTV reference. <laughs> I don't think they have MTV anymore, do they? <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously. <laughs> no, it's, it's cool. And to me, there's a great relief there because there's a constant sense, no matter where you live, who you are, oh, I wish I lived back in those times. It's completely mm -hmm. nonsense. You know, those times were dangerous, hot, sticky. If you got sick, you were in real trouble. And a lot of times, the level of cruelty and deprivation in those times would have, you know, astounded us. We're lucky to live when we live, where we live, despite all the craziness surrounding us. Why do we spend? There's nothing, there's no greater waste of energy, I find, for an esotericist or a cultist than to spend time pretending they're Katy Perry in the Dark Horse video. Like, you're not. You don't have to pretend you lived in, you know, oldie tiny days around Stonehenge. You don't have to pretend you're an ancient Greek and, and, and you know, swish around in a chitin. That's not part of it. It's okay to call on them as a contemporary person. It's okay to apprehend them in a contemporary paradigm. And in fact, it's fun because then you get to sharpen your eyes and your ears and your senses, internal and external, of am I, am I getting something? Are they appearing? Am I in relation? Could they be answering me in a way it's not intuitive, you know, that, that that's not my first expectation, which enhances our ability to perceive the unseen acting through the, the media of the phenomenal world. Well, and I think it's useful in that light to understand there's, we've discussed on the podcast before with, um, you know, different people, I think Gregory Shaw, Butler, Angela Voss, we've discussed, you know, things like synthemata, um, which, you know, later became understood through the doctrine of correspondences, among other things. I mean, if you understand that if you're dealing with Apollo, you know, whether it's a bee or a sunflower or something made of actual right. gold, right. you know, understanding this is a language it, 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 it's in the phenomenal world, which is always in a state of change and flux. There are there is this sort of correspondences that are part of this, you could say the frequency, the radio frequency. Yeah. And, you know, and mm -hmm. if you know, if you know that, you know, sink foil is a mercurial thing as is topaz and, you know, there might, there are some modern things in the modern world that didn't exist in that world, which could also be analogized. And if you understand that, then you can also understand when a sign arises, which is a clear manifestation of the God. And then on top of that, you know, when you work with spirits, sometimes you start to develop your own personal language with the spirit through offerings and so then once you've made a certain kind of offering to a spirit or a daimon then you may when you see that offering the daimon may be communicating you to you through you know a certain like a cardinal's feather you know or something like that or you you know you may offer it say i'm just coming up with something like you know you make an offering of some cardinal feathers or or eggs or something, and then you start to see cardinals and you notice something happens right afterwards because the spirit has then 
come to you, you and the Spirit have established a locus between the two of you, a common point of communication through a symbol in the natural world. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes yeah. sense. And it has a direct parallel. You know, there's another spell, and I'm thinking of PGM 7, it begins on line 795, where you conjure the holy angels as Albio asking Apollo to send you an angel to allow you mantic skill. And the instructions in the PGM say, the spirit you call, the angel, enters in the form of your friend whom you recognize. It tells you the angel will appear, but you'll see them in the form of your friend. Of course it does. If it comes, it's there to help. Why would you not envision them as your friend? It's an exactly what we're talking about. So, Jack, how do you see... Um the difference, or is there a difference? Is it just uh, maybe a context issue with the difference between Bronze Age spirituality that you see in, in say, the, the Greek worldview and what you see later as far as how the gods are represented, how they uh, act towards one another? Um, oftentimes, it's a little bit more uh, literal, and, and the yeah. farther, the closer to us you get, um, they become a little bit more noetic. But the farther back you go, it seems as though they are a little bit more human since you are kind of delving into Homer. Yeah, right, right. Well, one of the shocking things for people who come, as you know, to, to the Iliad and Odyssey without a background in them, if they're expecting a bunch of noble, respectable, you know, entities in, in white robes acting graciously, they're in for a, a sore disappointment because when they see the the soap opera antics of the gods in uh, in Homer's works. But it's, it's worth mentioning because it's a great question. You know, Homer, whoever we call Homer, wrote down these works, or him or his school or whatever, around the eighth, 7th or 8th century BC. But because bards at that time, and in different cultures too, are capable of memorizing verbatim huge amounts of material, and passing it on as they received it a generation ago, it's quite possible that Iliad and Odyssey were, were not composed in 800 BC, might be five, six, seven hundred years earlier, which would put it pre-Dark Age Greece in the Bronze Age, in the Mycenaean Age, when Agamemnon actually lived the, and ruled Mycenae. Um, you know, when Homer was there in 800, and, and, and in the year 500 BC, when um, artists like Aeschylus were writing about Agamemnon in the Oresteia, they were writing about a kingdom that had disappeared 700 years before. It's like reading Renaissance bards talking about Camelot. They didn't know anything about England the year 400, the Saxon invasion. It's so far past it. So when we look right. at Iliad and Odyssey, and we see, though they're literature, when we see how the gods interact with mortals, it is truly eye-opening. And what we see is a very demonic aspect to these gods. And that's not to say demonic in the Christian sense, but daimonic in the sense of a lower spirit, a spirit that exists between the heavens and the earth, a spirit that can do you a favor or bear a grudge, a spirit that can get you pregnant, a spirit that you can cut with a knife. A spirit that can be hopeful for something you'll do or disappointed in something you didn't do. In short, a spirit, a non-transcendent spirit that exists like you 
in the slipstream of time. They are subject to fate as we are in Homer's works. And as the Egyptians would say, fate is time and time is fate. Time creates fate because when you have time, then you have cause and effect and one thing follows the other as opposed to everything being static and revealed at once. And of course, like Iamblichus would say, the gods are transcendental. They are ubiquitous, ineffable. They exist outside of time. They don't get angry, hopeful, or disappointed. They exist in perfection. And we are caught in time. And we can try to ascend to a glimpse of them by trying to transcend time and the materiality which bears the imprint of time because we degrade and erode and, you know, entropy, etc. But in the Bronze Age, these deities are avian, predatory, they're like raptors, and they're frequently described as the same. They exist up in the heavens on the on Mount Olympus, but when they see something they don't like, they rocket down just like diving eagles, and they'll smash or kill someone they don't like, or if someone that they do like, they'll snatch them up, whisk them away to a safe location where they can heal and repair. And uh, there's a very telling image of when Athena and uh, Apollo arrange for there to be a a battle between two great warriors, they perch on a tree branch as vultures to watch it take place. The bloodless ones, as they are called, love blood shed. They are, you know, their sacrifice was bullocks and uh, hecatombs of bulls, the slaughter. They can't drink it. It doesn't run in their veins. They have, um, they have ichor in their veins. They drink ambrosia. They are not mortal and they don't, they can't do what mortals do. But they share the fact that they, like us, are caught in the slipstream of time. They, too, are subject to fate. The difference is they can often see what's coming. And so they'll know that their son is going to die. They'll know that this city is going to fall. By the time the Iliad begins, Thetis, the sea nymph, already knows that the great Greek hero Achilles is going to die. He will never leave Troy. And she's told him that. She can't change it. The gods know that Troy is going to fall. The Greeks will win. It's predetermined. They can see it. They can't stop it. But they can live fully within the moment as we get close to that threshold. And as you know, Troy never falls during the Iliad. The Iliad's about a few really bad weeks in the Greek camp. And the actual fall of Troy and the horse and all that um, appears off screen, so to speak. So it's actually quite useful to look at this daimonic aspect of the gods if you're practicing the magic of the PGM, for instance, which was written largely about you know 1,100 years before it was even written down by Homer, because the PGM, not surprisingly, has a confusing intermix and a beautiful interplay of demonic gods and spirits and transcendent gods and spirits. So you have the Mithras rite or these Agatho diamond rites, where you're calling upon solar cosmo creators to imbue you with the creational power of the universe to elevate your soul in a theurgic way to transcend this world and gain gnosis and then you'll have a you conjure type and set and it says you know step on his toe so he can't escape and warn him that if he doesn't do this you'll do that and only release him if he promises to do that that's a demonic aspect of that deity they coexist and when you read the spells, because they're not collected really in any order, you can get whiplash going back and forth between 
theurgic workings and thaumaturgic workings and a transcendent deity model and a daimonic deity model. And you, you know, sometimes within the same spell, you know, during the, the prayer to Selene or the hymn to the waning moon, Hecate is both conjured as a corpse-chewing, grave-prowling, jackal-type thonic beast, and as the great bull of heaven whose horns are the celestial crescent of the moon, and as the primordial deity who gave birth to all things pronoia-like that sprang from her gods and the natural world and everything like that. So in one spell, there's at least three aspects of her, transcendent, celestial, and phonic. And yeah, you know? Yes. I, I, I love I love that and I agree one hundred percent. I think there is that confusion oftentimes of of you know why is this God acting in such a petty <laughs> way or how is this God interacting with, with humans if they are like you, you mentioned, uh Iamblichus says that they don't they don't suffer passions. They're unembodied. And I would I would segue I would take a sidestep for a minute into the tantric distinction, because this is a lot like the kind of language you were mentioning Ekati and her, to, to a limited perspective, these characteristics are contradictory in a way. Um, but this is like what we see in the descriptions of Makali, um, where she is the mother of the entire universe, but yet at the same time, she is a, you know, char haunts the charnel grounds and is with the, you know, the jackals and, and it is upon the cremation, you know, is in the cremation ground and it is in the, you know, the filth of creation and the menstruation and all these things. Um, and I think that, that part of this is the utter, the deity transcends these du dualistic, um, these opposite, which these things that appear as opposites to us are transcended by, by, this, by the character and nature of the deity where immanence and transcendence are interpenetrating, almost like the, the two triangles of Sri Yantra. This, these are not conflicting in the unitary consciousness of the deity. These, these are not things that... The deity is not limited by categorical representations, but instead is able to express itself through paradox as, as a way to help us transcend the, the material and psychic limitations of the lower realm. That's beautifully said. I mean, an obvious example of it is in current contemporary theology, God the Father is a transcendent monist monistic being, and Jesus Christ, though a God, lived within time, experienced things in the mortal realm, born, yes. lived, died, right. and was buried. So it's an example of a du dual sort of a dual aspect to deity having both a, a phonic and a, a transcendent um, existence. Which is why I think to the Sikhs, to some of the Sikhs, uh, Jesus is the son of Shiva, you know, because you have this preserver form and, and then you have the transcendental form of the God. What, what we're doing here is we're talking about the true, the, the, the actual deity, as opposed to these names and forms, which we humans use to identify them, um, you know, through our own understanding, which is, which is definitely limited by 
thought and word, which are meant to be in service to the deity rather than the other way around. And I think that people who get caught in discursive analytical retocination can, you know, become hung up on these limited categories. Also, I would venture to add, before I have to jump off here, the daimons of a deity, of a series of a deity, the daimons and angels of that deity, are not, they're not separate from the deity. They are, they are, um, their minds are continuous with the mind of the deity. Their minds are, their, their minds are one with the god or the goddess. So when you encounter a daimon who is a manifestation of Ekati or of Hermes or something, you're dealing with, you're dealing really with a being that is expressing the nature of that deity, comes in the form of that deity, and whose mind is one with the mind of the deity. But which is manifesting in a in a emanation that's not transcendent. So, in a way that we can actually observe and participate with, whereas a transcendent being maybe not so much, or not so easily. And I think we just lost Janice. Uh, that's okay. He'll be back. I hope. I. You know what? I love that. I have a kind of a homey metaphor for that, which is I've always been fascinated by the fact that the sheriff can deputize deputies. It's different from a police department. In a police department, the city hires a chief, and then the city hires a police officer, and the chief is the boss. Mm -hmm. But the officers are not the chief, and the chief is not the officers. But in a county, it's different. In a county, you have one law enforcement officer, which is the sheriff. And the sheriff can deputize as many people as, as he can. And by making them swear that oath to uphold the law in his name of the, you know, of the United States, they become him by being, they're not just hired, mm -hmm. they're deputized, meaning he can't be everywhere. They are him when they interact with the public because only one person is elected to enforce the law. But now they can do it. They can arrest someone. They can search a place. They can even shoot to kill under his authority. And if at any point he says to them, raise your right hand, he can have them unswear their oath and they lose that right to exercise his innate authority to stop, to search, to arrest suit so they are him aspected in the you know different personalities of course and different physical forms and everything else and to some degree a sheriff is more successful the more varied his deputies are because they have different skills and ability you need one covered in tattoos for under under you know groundwork and you need someone good yeah, at writing yeah, reports yeah. for the really uh complicated cases you need someone good at talking to kids when you're dealing with child victims like a sheriff needs a whole crowd of people of all different views, but ultimately, in the moments when it matters, they are him. And um, it creates an intimate connection. Their authority and his is solely derived through each other. And I think of that sometimes when I think of, you see 20 magical voices associated with the deity repeatedly, you know, Typhon Set, Ecate Selene, you know what the voices we're talking about. And they have a different feel in the mouth. You know, actiofi, nebuto, swalef, ereskegal. They're different, you know, they're different. Mm -hmm. And yet they're often conjured together. I always envision it the same way there could be a response team where you got a guy with a dog and you got a guy with a rifle and you got a guy with a microphone who's good, you know, talking down the hostage. And, uh, you know, they respond. What are their personalities? You know, who knows? The headless right, those, you know, those, those names which recur in different spells, as we saw in the PGM, 
you know, Yaos, Baoth, Adonai, Elohim, you know, and we know where they come from in Jewish lore and the Bible, but they take on independent agency in the PGM, though, you know, we would always agree they always seem to be emanations of that Abrahamic, Abrahamic demiurge. I love that um, example, and I'm, I'm going to ruin it here with, um, you know, you, you have B.A. Baracus, you've got Murdoch, <laughs> you've got Fate. They're all the you're, A-team. You're but revealing <laughs> your generation. High five. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's, I think it's a good segue, the points that you made there, into um, the idea of perhaps us becoming epiphanies for the gods. Um, we can certainly do that as well. Oh, absolutely. What are your thoughts on you know, that? What I do in my, when I do devotional work, one aspect of it is, you know, taking a bit of oil and, and, and putting in both my hands, kneeling before the statue of Akate and saying, I'm brushing my eyelids and saying, these eyes are not my eyes, but your eyes see through them. This nose, not my nose, but your nose, breathe through it. These lips, not my lips, but your lips, speak through them. Ears, hands. And I say, let me conduct you. Let me reflect you. As the moon reflects, the, as the sun reflects the moon, you know, let me reflect you. And um, it's inviting that that liminal, transitional power to the extent it wishes to, to act through me. And, you know, there's, mm-hmm. it, you have to be kind of careful what deities you invite to do that. You know, obviously, some sure. are more, though the gods are not binary, they're, they're just some are more known for, um, disruptive and disconnective and, uh, you know, stuff. But in this case, you know, she's my go-to deity that's sort of the gatekeeper for any other spiritual work I do, so I feel comfortable with that. And I think it's worth remembering that just as we awaken our senses, say, this person giving me advice, that person criticizing me, this person coming on to me, that person, you know, trying to, to trip me up, could this be an aspect of deity that's responding to or in reaction to something I'm doing, it's also useful and kind of freaky as you're interacting with people to say, could I be the same? Mm-hmm. Am I right now acting as Typhon said to this person? Am I right now acting as you know Jupiter or, or Hera to this person? And just to be aware of it, I I can't even add, you know, and stop it or do more because I I I, I suspect that free will is a lot less um you know, less of a thing than people think. And, um, but I do think it's, it's part of that exercise of observing the effects, spiritual um, manifestation in the phenomenal world to just ask oneself, what am I doing? What am I doing? And sometimes you'll be surprised by the answer. You know, I find, find myself mm-hmm. mentoring someone. I didn't know I wanted to do that. Well, who would be doing that? Well, what are you mentoring it? I'm teaching them, ritual work well that's a very mercurial very you know hermes a very false like action could you be channeling that god are, are you honoring them you are clearly but you know if someone weren't why not celebrate invite him to more deeply infuse you with his powers you can be a better mentor a better teacher a better guide and guard to this person who's put their spiritual you know uh, hopes in your hands and across the board for every deity whether you're father lover mother you know uh, owner of a company or something like that to invite these powers and to be epiphanies of them and then to actively try, you know, I don't think we need armbands mm-hmm. to say what would Zeus do, but I do think you can actively try to, you know, to, to think to yourself, 
to the extent that thinking or choice has a role. You could think, you know, if I were an epiphany of Zeus, if Zeus were to act through me in a non in a non supernatural way, what would success look like in this scenario? What would, you know, what would a, uh, what would it look like? It's a good question. Often we don't ask it. Yeah, I assume it would give, gain you favors with that God as well. Um, in that, uh, if you were welcoming to strangers, then you would be kind of an emanation or an epiphany of Zeus in that right. way. Um, and in, in which case, Janice mentioned the radio frequency, and I believe in that 100%, you would be, in participating in that way, you would be attuning yourself to that Zeus frequency yeah. Yeah. and aligning yourself in that way and gaining the, the boons and benefits that come with aligning in that way and kind of building off what we were talking about earlier with uh, Iamblichus saying that the gods are free from passion. They don't suffer passion. I, I believe in that. And I think that the passions that we see from the gods are perhaps when we take ourselves out of attunement with those gods and we lose those boons and those benefits, it can be perceived to us as um, maybe being the gods being angry with us because we aren't being bestowed these, these benefits anymore. Um, Where in reality it's, we have taken ourselves out of attunement. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Yes, 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 yes. It does have that. And there's a sense of, <laughs> There's a sense of laziness, too. I know, experience it myself. You have a friend who's arrested. You say a prayer, you know, please help them escape this terrible situation. And then the corollary, you followed up with, all right, other than the, the whole, you know, jail collapsing, like uh, Bacchus makes the uh, the jail do in, in the Bacchae, the play the Bacchae, what would what would that look like realistically? Well, someone's going to have to come up with bail for this poor <laughs> jerk. You're like, well, I can't make the thing collapse, but if you want to be an epiphany of Dionysus, maybe you should start. I got to start some fucking GoFundMe for this clown. No, like, right, and you think, right. oh, so much more work to be an epiphany of the gods. That is great <laughs> for help. But, you know, you have to at least right. be aware of that. What would success look like? What would the answer to your prayers? And oftentimes, just visualizing, just visualizing that is the useful exercise, you know? Because a lot of times we ask for help in kind of an inchoate way. Please help me. Please be my mm -hmm. friend and guide. Why do you need a guide? Why do you need a friend? What's gone wrong? You know, there's a secondary mm -hmm. conversation to be had there that lots of us avoid. Absolutely. And that also reminds me of uh, Chris Warnock uh, in talking about astrological magic. When you're trying to kind of uh, gain favors with the gods in the forms that they take cosmically as the planets, working with them to kind of mitigate issues where like with Saturn, you would the number associated with Saturn, you would maybe donate to a homeless mm -hmm. shelter for that many mm -hmm. days in order to kind of yeah. mitigate yeah. any negative in, in the case of the astrological ma uh, magic or astrology, it would be to mitigate your, your natal chart, the issues you may have with Saturn in your natal natal chart. So you would perhaps give to give to the homeless or other things associated with Saturn. Um, so it all really connects, which is amazing. And, and, Awesome. It is. And you know, it's cool. It, you know, it reminds me of in kind of a reverse way is in Peter Jenks's book, The Thai Occult. He talks about how Thai sorcerers, who of course, you know, come from a Buddhist culture, part of their offerings to the restless dead spirit that they raise is if you do this for me, not only will I, you know, offer you a gift, but I'll donate money to charity in your name. And this will help mm -hmm. the spirits 
karma, it will help them transcend to whatever stage they need to uh, to next uh, go to. So it is within the paradigm of the spirituality to reward them by doing a good deed, even if they're doing like something nefarious. Part of that is helping process the spirit by offering something that aligns it with a higher source and helps it ascend. So it's it's kind of cool in that it's a reminder that even if you're doing thonic work or necromantic work or thaumaturgical work or whatever, there you can always come up with, you know, sort of a, um, a celestial or transcendent paradigm that you're part of, you know, and uh, at least to ask yourself, am I, you know, am I participating uh, in a in a creative and healthy way in my role in creation, or am I, you know, ret- am I like Mercury retrograde, setting everyone back? <laughs> <laughs> Right, right, and I, I've I've seen it with uh, f- even with like folk folk magic with Catholicism. Mm-hmm. You pray to this, pray to the saint, and if the saint comes through, then you you donate to the church in that saint's name. Right. Um, I was wondering if you can expand on the tie, expand on the the whole Thai paradigm, and because we spoke about this earlier, and how it's speaking of similarities, how it has a lot of similarities with uh, like things you find in antiquity, specifically the PGM. I'll say this, and it's it's cool that you brought it up and I don't, I don't practice Thai magic, but I have read Peter Jenks's book, uh, the Thai occult. And I was startled when I read it, how many parallels existed between Thai folk magic and the magic of the PGM of the Greek magical papyri. Um, And I mean, there are too many to number here, but what's remarkable is, Here's two locations, 4,000 miles apart, in two different times, almost 2,000 years apart, and they share a similar paradigm. You know, in, in Thai magic, when someone dies violently and they're buried on a certain day, you know, a day associated, you know, with, with division and restlessness, the sorcerer will go to the graveyard, will try to get some materia from their body, will light candles, will ask for a useful spirit to come, invite that spirit to come, or if not that one, another one similar. They might focus on the spirit of a soldier or a policeman if they want a martial spirit, or a spirit of a, a courtesan if they want beautiful, lovemaking spirit. And they will ask them to imbue an oil or something like that. And then they'll go and either fashion, you know, either the, the oil to something that can be used or a, a, a statue or a mannequin or something like that, having conjured and uh, had, you know, a communication with and made offerings to and made promises to, and then finally incorporated it into materia for a working. And they'll do that. And then part of the offering saying, I will help you, you know, I'll, I'll donate money to this orphanage perhaps in your name, which will help your karma or whatever. So you have flowers or fruit and you also have an offering to spiritual. And you look at that and they also, of course, will collect materia not just from, you know, like car wreck or something, but, you know, from a tree that was killed by a, a parasite or a, you know, a, a crossroads at a, at a graveyard and, and incorporate it in their amulets and that sort of thing. Incorporate dice or incorporate, you know, metal shavings. And it's directly in line, as you know, with many of the workings in the PGM, the activating ingredient is always a restless soul. The restless spirit, they're not your friends, they're the fuel of the working. They're there to be conjured. They're, they're the agent, right? It's not enough just to wish generally my intention will make it happen. No, for a lot of this magic, especially if it's sick-making or lust-making magic, you go to someone where they were violently killed or buried, 
and you call upon that spirit that died young or violently, and you say, you call it, you conjure it using the spells, you leave an offering, usually of food or a libation, you compel it, you put it in, you know, if you have the material, certainly a bit of clothing, a bit of hair, that's best of all, a bit of bone. But if not, you can ask it to imbue the dust over its grave. Then you use that to activate a charm, to cause lust, to cause sickness, cause whatever. And you can ask it to be, you know, to treat you well, not to be angry with you. And then asking some other god who's doing the heavy lifting, Akate, Anubis, Hermes, Cathonios, you know, Osiris, make sure the spirit does what I tell it. Don't let it get out of hand. You, you rule it. We can't rule it. We can't see it. You know, we'll know it's, if it's affected mm -hmm. by the result. But we call upon a spiritual mediator to manage the unseen power that we've called upon, the restless dead, and then tell it to go and, and do its thing. And you look at both of these, like, wow, and that is a large spectrum of both the PGM work and, you know, this what, the stuff that Jenks talked about in Thai occult. And included in the PGM, you know, they frequently say, get the water from a shipwreck, get the wood from a boat that foundered get the iron from a shackle. These items are associated with people that have been in bondage, that probably drown, things like that. You combine them in a way that they still attain a bit of that virtue of that restless spirit. And then you combine them and you engage with them with the spirit mediator and ask them to do this or that or not to do this or that. But to me, it's super exciting because it comes from two completely different cultures it functions under the same paradigm and some of the same techniques are even used, which is quite exciting because A, it shows that the PGM wasn't just a bunch of BS that one person made up out of their mind completely with no connection right. to tradition, history or anything like that. It shows that, you know, obviously it is, it is you know, related to prior pharaonic magic, um, but it also shows just as sorcerous tech, it's not unique. It has parallels in the Far East, some of them startlingly close to each other. And what's fun is that then because the PGM has full of lacuni, you know, and some gaps, mm -hmm. you can then look to Thai magic, which has a very good record because it's still practiced today, folk magic, and say, oh, well, I may fill in the gap with that technique, you know, in, in both of them. They talk about using, you know, the PGM will talk about Anubis thread, right? But it never quite describes what Anubis thread is. It's supposed to tie in 100 knots or 365 knots saying Abrasaks to stand for the year. But it never explains how to get it. We suspect it might have been thread used for funerals because Anubis was the undertake god of undertakers. He's the one that prepared uh, Osiris's corpse. Well, in Thai magic, sure. they will actually use thread that's used you know, to dress a corpse as as a magical thread to bind two wax figures together or something like that. They'll use funeral thread. So it's not, you know, right. And so you look at it and you're like, okay, it's not a hundred percent sure, but it's very likely they're doing the same thing, using funereal thread to allow the spirits of the dead or the God of the dead to bind, you know, and stuff like that is very exciting. And Thai magic will start working with candles in a graveyard. And if a candle blows out, it's over. It's done. It's, you know, it's a sign the spirit's not pleased or they're restless. That doesn't exist. Um, and if, if you're like me, candles go out all the time. I read that and I was like, oh, well, maybe I should have paid more attention, you know. But it's useful, you know, if you want to adopt that tech 
you know, you can you can try it and see if it works. They have a great phrase uh, that they use. And Tinks did a good job interviewing the actual sorcerers, the Thai sorcerers that do the work, where they say often the ghost approaches from behind, which is really uh, cool because if you're like me and you don't have you know, visions all the time, a lot of the best you get is that prickling at the back of the neck and the goosebumps along the arm. And suddenly you think, I feel like someone's standing behind me. And that's what they're talking about. And that's when they know something's come. And so I can now switch to having a conversation with it because I'm not expecting to see it most of the time because the ghost usually approaches from behind. So stuff like that, I find hugely exciting because it can be easily applied mm -hmm. to these workings in ways that aren't always spelled out since, of course, the PGM spells were written by an adept for his, um, well, by a master for his adept. And presumably they're practicing daily, so they don't always spell out every little thing they do. Right. Well, being that these systems are so similar and so compatible, obviously, I mean, anyone who who's studied it for any time, would it's hard to deny the compatibility. Um, yeah, it's very exciting where you can kind of interject yeah. these other things from from Buddhism, from hoodoo. Yeah. It does work pretty well. I have found, though, that people are, which it's kind of funny, they're, they're almost nationalistic in a way where they want to keep something like the PGM or Western magic pure, which is <laughs> funny because we're talking about Greco-Roman Egypt. <laughs> In, yeah, it's like the least yeah. pure, the least homogenous culture you can imagine, you know. And especially since it's within the paradigm, you know. And the paradigm is relational spirit work, mm -hmm. usually with the restless dead or daimonic versions of the gods. And that, it transcends cultures, that type of work. It's, you know, they, um, that, that type of work. And there's interesting tips you can draw from it, like Thai sorcerers, when they're dealing with a dangerous, restless, dead spirit, they might put on lipstick or cross-dressed or wear nail polish, something they don't normally do in real life to create confusion. It acts as a mask, you know? And so if I were going to call, let's say, a, a restless spirit that I was actually worried about, like, this is a dangerous spirit, I might well, I could either do exactly that, or I might just get a translucent piece of black cloth and wrap it around my face and tie it off. I can still see through it. But now I'm masked, mm -hmm. like the Thai sorcerer. I'm going to deal with that spirit. It'll believe who I tell it to believe. I'm not going to give it my real name. I'm going to declare myself to be Hermes Thoth. I'm going to declare myself to be the servant of, uh, you know, the priest of Hecate. I'll declare myself to be John Smith. It doesn't need to know my name. It needs to do what it's meant to do. And here's what it's going to do. Mm -hmm. So that idea of masking can translate, even if you're not doing it exactly the way the example gave. And, you know, but you can see correspondences of that appear right away in, in, in Eastern Europe. You know, postmenopausal women will do magic. They're in a liminal state. They might let their hair down, which never happens when you're a mature woman. It's always up in traditional society. So to let it down is a mask in a way. You know, or um, this idea of cross-dressing during magical ceremonies isn't just Thai, right? You know, the, the whole idea that priests wear robes, you know, wear essentially a black dress and monks, like there's, there's something there of masking who you are in certain ways. It's wonderful because these things about their practice, they're very practical. And the, you know, the, the, the paradigm translates. You can find ways to apply it in ways that are completely consistent with the working. And to me, it's a great indicator um, 
that this work is is valid, that it comes from a true, a true tradition of spirit work, that it can be accessed today. It's not just generically UPG. Sometimes people throw away that word as if even if I create a magical system tomorrow of worshiping spaghetti monster by burning Cheerios, that's no different than the source from the PGM saying burn myrrh to call forth Hecate Selene. But it is different. Mm -hmm. It is different. The first is UPG. And who knows, if I get results, maybe I'll start my own school. In a thousand years from now, it'll be a thing. But right now, it's completely UPG. Burning myrrh to Hecate Selene it comes from, yeah, that spell was written by an individual who experienced inspiration in the moment. Those words came from human tongue and not divine hand that floated in the air. But that conjuration is a, a, um, a valid traditional current of conjuration and magic with roots far deeper than the written language that has parallels all over the world. And the, and the Thai magic uh, shows that. Okay, Jack. Well, we're looking at over two hours. I can <laughs> certainly continue talking to you for another two, but uh, I don't know if our listeners are, have the stamina for that. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure you have other things to do today. What do you have going on? Where can people find you? Is there anything that you're doing that um, that's current that people can kind of look into and, and tap into? Yeah, thanks for asking, man. I, um, I, have, um, I, I do teach every couple times a year this class on Akate. At, uh, it's a 13-week class at the Blackthorn School. You go to theblackthornschool.com and you can find it. It's always re-upping in a few months. I do teach twice a year this class on the PGM, where we do, a, as you know, a year-long exploration of the PGM with a different spell a week and discuss and explore the workings. And that uh, starts in uh, August of 2021 and, and in winter of 2022. And that's at the Blackthorn School as well. And then I, I have this um, class on Homer going in the Iliad and Odyssey called God's Song. And anyone interested in that could go to my website, uh, jackgrail.com, and, uh, and find a link to that. So thank you for asking. All, all, our, all comers are welcome. We have a good time, and they attract. There's a lot of camaraderie and a lot of friend, people find friends and, uh, and make new discoveries. It's, it's really enjoyable to be part of these, uh, these groups. I actually very much enjoy the PGM class. I, I can recommend that very highly. And, um, you know, for nerds like me to get a curated weekly commentary on uh, PGM spells is just uh, heaven for the end, of, <laughs> the end of the week. You know, it's a hard work week. And then to look forward to that is, is great. Um, yeah. So good work. You, good. Jack puts a lot of passion into his work and a lot of very interesting insights. So, appreciate you very much coming on it's been a long time coming i've been wanting to to do this for a while sorry that janice disappeared but he's got stuff going on but yeah just thank you again for your time and uh for your thoughtful responses and for the education you've given us and our audience well, fantastic it's been great to be on thank you for inviting me it's been great to talk you have a great week thanks jack That was the phenomenal Jack Grail. We're very pleased to have had him on the show. In my opinion, he's putting out some very high quality material. Dominic, I'm sure agrees. And I do want to put it out there. I want to venture to say that it is important to make this distinction. We usually frown upon people in the so-called marketplace 
selling their wares because uh, most of them are hawking shabby reproductions, uh, knockoffs. In in Jack's case, you're dealing with with the equivalent of a college course. The material he teaches is rigorously composed, uh, delivered in, in an educated manner, and it is of the highest quality. I think he and Susan Chang, who is also a guest on our show, are really just exemplifying a certain level of quality, kind of like Sarita, who is another person who I deeply respect. These people are putting material out there that are worth, is worth your time. Material worthy of, as I've said, a, a, a collegiate level course. This is collegiate level education. This is not just how to do magic, how to do quote unquote thaumaturgy or sorcery. This is uh, bound up with some of those practices and ideas. But more importantly, we're going into human culture. We're going into the depths of understanding the culture of the gods and the nature of intercourse with the invisible world and the imaginal realm. We're looking at historical sources, drawing on actual archaeological and textual evidence. And because of that, these people who are shining stars um, amongst a mire of imitators are bringing things to a respectable level, a level that could be approached by someone who has gone through the disciplines of serious study in the uh, academies and come out of it with a respect and a healthy appreciation for the material. So I just want to make that distinction here because we do usually disparage certain individuals who shall not be named because they want to be internet a culture personalities. It's more about profanation of the sacred and hubris and lack of piety. And I would say that Jack is guilty of none of those things where in fact, I would say that he is filled with piety and devotion to the gods. And his entire approach is one of awe before the magnificence of the Supreme. Yeah, nicely said. I totally agree, um, obviously. So, yeah. And as far as the thaumaturgy, theurgy um, conversation, I think Jack is a great example of a a very nice balance of the two things. Um, obviously, something like the PGM is very uh, thaumaturgic. You know, that's undeniable. There's a lot of wonder working. There's, there's a lot of uh, petitioning. Uh, there's a lot of coercion. I mean, these things are obvious and, and Jack will tell you just as much, but um, there is what we've been trying to kind of bring home is, is the importance of striking a balance. It doesn't have to be one or the other, which is kind of the, the attitude nowadays in some circles, which is strange. I think like anywhere else, having a balance is probably the most optimal thing you can do. So um, again, we thank Jack for coming on. He's just a wealth of, of inspiration and 
just really interesting insight, uh, insight coming from a place of praxis. Um, the insights that Jack has are, you know, to me, it's, it's obvious that these are coming from a place of, of personal, deep personal practice and experience. When I first came across Jack's stuff, I sent it over to Janice and we both agreed that this, he was definitely the real deal. So very happy he was able to come on and, and chat with us. And we hope that you uh, follow him and see what he's up to for your own uh, continued learning. And I would venture to say also that reality is built from the bones and flesh of the gods. When you walk on the ground, you're walking on the body of the gods. When you breathe the air, you're breathing the substance of the gods. This is fundamental to an archaic orientation. Because of that, thaumaturgy is effective because the names of the gods have inherent power, because the gods are present everywhere, because reality is constructed from their existence and was built by them, but also from them. Because of that, Thaumaturgy is effective, but like a teacher of mine once said, do you really need to call the president to clean the toilet? I think that's a pretty good analogy. There's a certain kind of profanation that occurs in the common parlance. These things do uh, sort of reverberate back within the soul because the gods are also in the soul the divine is within the soul god the supreme god however you want to put it is within the soul as well and we should have due reverence to our own true nature our own true divine self and be cautious in the way that we employ the potentials that lie sleeping resident within the depths of the soul um, and it might be wise to let sleeping dogs lie or sleeping dragons lie even. I mean, there's nuances and complexities here, but if a person uses thaumaturgy for material means, there's nothing wrong with that. But our hope, and I think the aim is that by the employment of these procedures, the person will be led to simply by a, by actuating these divine potentials by calling on the names by doing the work they should be led to some type of congress with the the sacred with the divine that in turn may elevate their perspective and draw them naturally into a theurgic orientation where they begin to see the sacred everywhere in everything that's the hope that's the aim okay Janice, what do you got for everybody as far as our book review? I think people who are willing to do the college course level study of these matters will find it very helpful. It is uh, epilegomena. I probably said that word wrong. Epilegomena and Themis by Jane Ellen Harrison. The full name of the book is Epilogomena to the Study of Greek Religion and Themis, A Study of the Social Origins of Greek Religion. Uh, this is a truly excellent book. Epilogomena, it's actually two books in one, really. Epilogomena and Themis, are, are, but they're together in this volume. It, this is the level of quality that the Bollingen publishers would have put out. It is so people familiar with the work of Jung and Korban and uh, Kamora Swami and, and um, you know, those folks, 
would be familiar would be would be familiar with this level of quality and and in study it's pretty incredible the first volume or the first half of the book because it's two books in one covers primitive ritual primitive theology and then modern remnant the remnants in modern day in themis it really gets even deeper it goes into um for instance the dithyram the Karides, the thunderites the origin of the Olympic Games, even Daimon and Hero from Daimon to Olympian, and here's just a brief selection of some of the ty- some of the topics that are covered. Uh, there's the Bull Sacrament of Atlantis, Mars as the Year God, reincarnation of ancestors, Themis as collective conscience, and the Woodpecker King, psychology of magic. From Daimon to Olympian is is very interesting chapter, the Titanomachia. So it really it goes very. She is very thorough in her explorations of Greek ancient Greek religion, and really there's no stone left unturned in this book. It's not. It's the kind of book that I cut my teeth on when I was younger. A book such as this and um, some earlier works like the Gnostics and their remains on Gnosticism and things like that. The works of G.R.S. Mead, the works of Karen Yee. This is really where you're going to find the kind of magic that we talked about with Jack. But I strongly recommend anybody interested in the Greek magical papyri, ancient Greek religion, ancient Greek magic to pick this book up. It's going to take you a while to read through. It is um, almost, yeah, it's actually, including the index, it is 600 pages. So it is not a small book, but it will really, really pay you back in dividends. It'll pay your investment back in dividends in terms of attention. Uh, and you will understand so much more about the, the Greek understanding of the sacred from this book. Awesome. And can you uh, say the name and author again, and maybe spell the name as well? Epilegomena to the study of Greek religion and Themis, a study of the social origins of Greek religion by Jane L. and Harrison. It was published by University Books, New Hyde Park, New York. Epilegomena is E-P-I-L-E-G-O-M-E-N-A. And uh, thank you for listening, everyone. We really appreciate your listenership and your support. If you want to follow us, please do so on Facebook. That's a pretty easy place to follow what we're, uh, what we're up to. Um, you can also find us on YouTube and all of the podcast places where you find podcasts. And uh, so that would be it for now. Janice, anything else? No, that's it. I'm just grateful for everybody that listens to our podcast and supports it. I'm glad to be back on track and, you know, getting getting back into the mix of things with this. We have uh, some great people lined up for the future, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yep, same here. Okay, everyone, thank you, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>